everyone and welcome to episode 38 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I will be your host today as always. We will be talking about some wonderful things, some juicy things and I felt like I could not do it without a special guest so I would like to welcome Montel Gordon to the History Hotline today. He will be with us as we look at our theme I think for the next few episodes called protesting racism it's all about the uprisings the race riots the protests that we've seen historically in this country and looking at it in a modern context as well because you know what's the point of history if we can't apply it to the life we're living today and make those connections and links so going to first of all introduce Montel and then we're going to get into the theme of of the podcast and what we will be discussing. So a quick bio and a quick introduction, just so you know what Montel's all about. He is a freelance music journalist and historian interested in African-American history and culture, as well as Black British social and cultural history. He completed his undergraduate degree at the University of Nottingham in American History and Literature with a dissertation titled Hip-Hop, uh, Neo-Minstrelsy, How Misogyny Corrupted Hip-Hop, which sounds actually sick, so, so interesting. Um, and he's currently doing his master's at the University of Warwick in Modern History, specifically researching policing the crisis and the black communities, the economic crises and policing during the 70s and 80s. And one of the main reasons he's here today is um, for an article that he wrote in The Independent called Britain has had decades of protest against racial injustice and we can't stop now, uh, where he explores communities of protests against racial injustices from 1981, which is where our focus will be today, um, to contemporary times and looking at like Black Lives Matter and that movement that happened last summer um, and has continued to happen. Um, Montel also created a music blog um, titled Nostalgia 99 um, back in May 2020 um, and he self-published a biannual magazine called Nostalgia 99 which sold out in actually a few days um, and that is like a fantastic kind of body of work that he works on as well so we've got the musical elements we've got the history we've got America we've got Britain we've got everything in Montel today so Okay, so before we get into the, you know, the juice and the flesh of this episode and thinking about protesting, uh, let's do a little quick fire round to get to know Montel, uh, a little bit more about him, his interests in terms of history and all that good stuff. So Montel, who would you say is your favourite historical figure? I would have to go for W.E.B. Du Bois, just a big fan of his work and also his activism, even though there's a little bit of, well, not a little bit, there was flaws to him as a person sometimes. Yeah. I still, you know, admire him, one of my favourite scholars and an inspiration in, the, in terms of academia. Yeah, of course. Um, du Bois, was, he's, a, he's a legend, a heavy hitter, I would say. Um, okay, so your favourite historical event? Favourite historical event, Haitian Revolution, without a doubt, 100 million percent. I feel when I learned it, when I, when I learned about it, when I was about like 14, 15, and understanding that this was like the first free black nation and a mix of like learning about slave trade in school and the abolition movement, it was something that kind of really revitalised my politics and also personally really kind of, you know, speared me on in a way that to learn wow. more about black history. Yeah, no, I, I don't even think I was fortunate enough to know about that until I was probably like in sixth form, if not at uni. Um, so that's like amazing that you got to learn about that so early because it is such a fascinating event and such a kind of, not life-changing in 
in that kind of way, but game-changing event in, in the Caribbean and how that impacted the Americas and Britain in terms of slavery, as you said. Question number three is your favourite historical time period or periods? It's a tie between three different ones. Okay. Or different between each other. So uh, 14th, 15th century Mali, the Malian Empire. Okay. My favourite African empire to study. Um, Harlem Renaissance, Renaissance, Renaissance. Can't even pronounce it properly. But yeah, <laughs> I love the plethora. <laughs> I love the plethora of works that was that was written at this time, and I learned about this in university in a module. And I read Quicksand, Wife and Good Last, and I love that book. You know, yeah. poems from Maxine Hughes as well. Yeah. Just like the whole kind of cotton club and what was going on in Harlem at the time. So that's Definitely. something I loved. And then also Wild Card. Tudor, um, Tudors and Stuarts, well, more specifically Stu- um, Stuarts. I love learning about Stuart, Stuart Britain, and you know, the reigns of Ch- uh, James I, Charles I, Cromwell, wow. the Protectorate, oh Restoration. It was interesting. <laughs> it was interesting to go to school in sixth form when I learned about it. So It's a very wild something. card. <laughs> it's a very wild card, but yeah, that's something I like to read about casually. Yeah, no, I think. doing it. Did you do it at A level? Yeah, I don't know, A level. Yeah, like I think the, the depths you get to go in at A level can make a lot of topics a lot more interesting than they might have been in lower school. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I did the Tudors as well, and I did enjoy it. I wouldn't say I disliked it, even though looking back, I do find it a little bit boring. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I respect your choices there, definitely. Um, and then where would you say your interest in history began? So was it something at school? Was it a teacher or, or something else? So yeah, like my, me and my dad would, I would always just come in the room and I was watching history documentaries. Oh. But again, it was very always Eurocentric, you know. It was like I don't know why I would watch it. Maybe just for the sleep to it. Where I always yeah. watch stuff on like a lot of Roman history, but I always okay. did that as well. Greek and Greek history, um, whitewashed Egyptologists, mm. Egyptian history. I always laugh at the documentaries where they always say the aliens brought the pyramids. That's something mm-hmm. that I always laugh at. <laughs> but then also, yeah, um, a lot of just random ones on BBC4 when they were going towards, like, Timbuktu. Like, with like, Michael Palin goes on those little tr- little like, journeys. Yeah. Much younger, so those are stuff that kind of really infatuated me. Definitely. And that's how I kind of grew a lot of history. Yeah. That's the thing with history. It's like, you know, if you're a historian or you, you're interested, there is so much you could possibly think about, whether it's a history of food in, you know, a country that you've never been to before or the history of music somewhere or culture or politics. Like history is just massive. Everything has a history. So I feel like there's always something that someone will find interesting, which is why when people say they don't like history, I know they're lying because they just haven't found their history. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. Even as you were saying, music, food, that's almost history of everything. So literally. Okay, and future research interests since your, you know, dissertation season coming to the end of, of all that. Um, what are your plans for potential future work within history or not, or other kinds of research? So when I was doing my dissertation, I talked a lot about the education system and also kind of like looking at well, I was making links between like the colonial legacies of the education system and also now, and yeah. also, I guess exclusion rates and ESNs of like black mm-hmm. kids, black kids in like the seventies and eighties and the sixties, and then now I feel like I'm moving more into like the field of sociology. I like to bring in a okay. lot of contemporary stuff, so yeah. I feel I want to look at like school as a potential pipeline to the prison industry for like a lot mm, of yeah. black kids in in Britain. That's something that's not really being spoke about in academia. So hopefully I can bring something new to the table. Definitely, so that's my plans for the future. 
Sounds good. And I think coming at that with a historical context, as you said, looking at the colonial education system, ESN schools in the like 60s and 70s, that all is a backdrop for what's happening now with bruise and exclusion rates. And as you said, the um, school to prison pipeline or the exclusion to prison pipeline. So definitely wishing you all the best for that future research. I think I feel like you could still keep that historical if you really wanted to. No. Yeah, definitely keep it keep it a lot historical. I'm I'm toy I don't know, I'm toying between it, between history yeah. or sociology, but yeah. hopefully I make up my decision soon. Yeah, well, I feel like you've got time, so whenever and also I think there won't be any wasted research. If you start something in sociology or history, you know, it all links back anyway. Because as we said, everything has a history, so it wouldn't be time wasted at all. Most definitely, most definitely. <laughs> Thinking about our theme now, it's going to sound a bit silly as I am in charge of this podcast and it is literally only me, but I haven't decided whether this is going to be a series or this is going to be a standalone episode. I think there'll be a series, but I don't think it will be a long one. But I do want to think about uh, protesting racism and protests in the UK, but especially kind of protests within um, the black community, anti-racist protests that are kind of rooted in, in blackness and black people kind of fighting for their rights in different ways um and you've written an article um that was published in the independent um titled britain has had decades of protests against racial injustice which it has and we can't stop now and i just wanted to get maybe your thoughts as to well why did you write the article what kind of spurred you on or what led you to to think about um this kind of long history of of protests in this country so yeah i was writing my dissertation and i've seen one of the editors putting on Twitter that they were taking submissions for articles. And I thought, since it was 40 year anniversary since, 40 year anniversary since the yeah. uprising in 1981, I thought, you know, and me doing my dissertation on the topic as well, I thought it would be a perfect time for me to, I guess, share some of the work that I've been doing and just put it onto a grander, grander scale. But also on, on top of that, I also noticed the continuities between 1981 and 2020 with the protest now. Definitely. So I thought, a lot of people may not know about what happened in 1981. And as I ended the article, I said, until the lions have their own historians, the story mm. of the hunt, or always over the hunter, you know. Yeah. And I guess a lot of our hist- history gets lost for Absolutely. some reason. Unless you, you have, you've had a family member or a, or an uncle or I guess an uncle, family friend that was kind of involved in that. No one really speaks about it, you know. Definitely. That's something that I've really noticed about. So I think it's time that we kind of regain our own history and talk a lot about what was been happening in Britain. You know, yeah, we always definitely. just we always feel like for some reason like it was all rainbows and sunshines when <laughs> our grandparents came in the Rainbow Generation, you know, and it was which certainly as we know was not the case. So I, yep. I think it's time we really talk about what was really going on, what was really happening. I agree, definitely. I think you've, you're onto something there, especially with looking at the kind of long histories and also this idea that. Um, you know there's been a history of protest in this country um, and black people have been fighting and this history has not been widely spoken about which we know because you know doing history at university level and at master's level you really have to fight to to find kind of the lecturers that can support you and a place for you to do this kind of research within a lot of institutions that don't even at this point have um, departments for black British history or enough academics to support the maybe potential number of students that would like to study this um this is kind of changing a, a little bit now but i'm sure your experience in in higher education will kind of talk to that as well i was blessed in a way when yeah. i was choosing my when i was choosing my kind of when i was choosing where i wanted to do my masters 
mm. I was always I, was, I always looked first at like the, the academic interests of a lot of the professors there and yeah. luckily the supervisor I took wrote a book on this topic that I was that I was doing my dissertation on Fantastic. and his book was amazing shout out to Dr Simon Peplow Race and Rights yeah and yeah he's fucking him <laughs> so yeah no, he wrote definitely. the most amazing book on it so and if I never had him I don't think I would have had I would have had anyone else to supervise my topic at a university and I think particularly for like a lot of the, uh, the top Muslim group institutions you really find it difficult to find someone that really specializes in black British history and that I think a lot of it's very Eurocentric and again I feel maybe it's time that we have more scholars that, that appeal to this kind of to this history as yeah. well because there's a, there's, a, there's a growing interest of course so yeah it's very difficult I feel for black kids and um, going into academia to try and have those people that specialize in these fields but hopefully yeah. fingers crossed change will come definitely definitely and yeah as you said you were definitely blessed with uh, Simon Peflo at Warwick definitely I think at this point I'm just going to explain to listeners what was happening in 1981 with these riots because I think we're going to reference them a lot and just for anyone that needs that context so pretty much from April to July um, 1981 there were what are were often called race riots. However, I think it's a bit of a problematic term in a way. Um, I would say that a better term might be protests, and it's why I've said protesting racism is going to be the title. Um, although if you ever kind of read about them, they'll probably be known as the 1981 race riots. So, you know, don't be confused looking for protests when that's not what they were called historically. Um, and they were basically uh, related to racial tensions um, and inner city deprivation across many different cities so not just London not just Birmingham as we've mentioned but in the north as well um Brixton being one of the main places in London and Tottenham um you've got Toxteth in Liverpool you've got um Chapel Town in Leeds Moss Side in Manchester Handsworth in Birmingham um and these kind of happened from April to July so very similar to what we saw in 2011 over that summer after Mark Duggan was um killed You've got a series of riots hitting inner cities where there is a lot of poverty and a lot of deprivation and a lot of political and racial tension because of the way the police are treating black people primarily. But I think, and I don't know if you'll agree with me, Montel, just like in 2020, uh, where we kind of stopped um, and protests in, in the wake of George Floyd being murdered, it wasn't just about George Floyd. I don't think anyone that took to the streets in England just protested George Floyd and many of the signs were saying you know the UK is racist too the UK is just as complicit it was never just about America and I think that's an important point to to draw on when we think about kind of the fact that whilst the police and their um, brutality can aggravate protests it's never just that and the um, depravity and the the poverty that was kind of seen in in the 1980s where you've got Margaret Thatcher as, as Prime Minister um, it's very similar to I think the suffering people going through in 2020 maybe because of the pandemic maybe because austerity maybe because of the Tories or a whole host of things sorry I've said a lot there um, I don't know if you want to pick up on any of those points yeah you made like a lot of interesting points especially when you're talking <laughs> about you. like the BLM stuff in um, what was going on if you look on actually people went to the protest and looked at the signs you don't mention mm. A wide name of a wide range of people's names. The UK is not yeah. innocent, of course, not innocent. I feel people just thought that when we went to these protests, we were just protesting about George Floyd. Mm-hmm. But that is actually part of the reason. But also, we're looking at a, the whole system of racism itself and how yeah. racism is manifested through the Metropolitan Police. If Definitely. you guys 
have a chance, I would recommend looking at the Institute of Race Relations, where they've got two yeah. amazing pamphlets. They've got police, police in the black community, and there's another one. I think the one published in 1987, this has like over like 200 different case studies of police racism, uh, whether that's on the streets, in the station, at the schools, even going to churches and large group meetings. So mm-hmm. again, like people have to understand that the issue of the black community with the police is not just it's not just a lived experience, it's a learned experience as well that we yeah. learn about people that have been able to acquire a lot of these knowledge and these understanding about police race. Definitely. Absolutely. But yeah. Um even as we're talking about with the poverty and deprivation, that was like the, what was that was probably one of the underlying issues again with the uprising of nineteen eighty one. You have the recession that emerged from nineteen seventy four that kind of decimated a lot of the Western economies. And as I was talking about in the with the school the prison pipeline as well. Um, a lot of the black youths kind of left school with a little economic opportunities and they go yep. into these they go into these these jobs these what you call it like factory jobs and mm-hmm. then when the recession happened they kind of lose their jobs as you can go to china now to get cheaper products rather than yep. paying someone wholly for money in britain well not even wholly for money but you get the point mm, yeah more. So now that kind of <laughs> that kind of creates what this this kind of underclass or what marx kind of talks about this kind of it's lump and proletariat, but we can we can look at it in a black perspective, this black underclass now. So we've got like poverty, we've got deprivation, we've got high youth unemployment, evidently rise of crime. So this kind of brings in this over policing of the black community. And evidently now we have the uprisings that kind of emerged while starting Brixton, but also spread to, you know, Moss Side, spread to Handsworth and then Liverpool, which is another underrated kind of case study with Toxie. Yeah. If you look at like Liverpool have a deep history taken back from slavery that was probably one of the leading slave ports mm, in britain true. and also the superintendent was, was was a very racist individual um i think his name was ken anderson mm-hmm. and i remember he was in my dissertation i was looking at him where he was saying something a wild statement like the, the inhabitants of liverpool uh by well, the half cast as he called them were products of the black seamen and prostitutes mixing oh gosh and yeah, yeah toxic was that was one where kind of race, where you see kind of race and class intersect with each other because those kind of race riots, while the uprising, they were kind of interracial the way we see like the black and the kind of the white people uprising against police as well, and also yeah. against the state and Thatcher, what she was doing. Of course, yeah, and interestingly enough as well, because nineteen nineteen were the riots um, after World War One in Liverpool at the ports, um, because police were disproportionately targeting um, black ex servicemen who were seamen. Um, and because they couldn't get work after war and they were trying to deport them back, but they were kind of trying to find work and it all kind of kicked off. There's an episode on that if you want to know more about 1919. Um, but yeah, I guess, again, within that one city, you've got this history of, of uprising and protest in regards to race and racism. So, yes, it's it's very interesting that um, we have kind of all these options kind of to choose and pick from when we're thinking about this history. Definitely. And I like your I like your idea um, and your sorry, your observation of the the black underclass being created as a result of poverty, Um, because I feel like in that time period, when we think about race and class, we forget that they intersect um, and not all black people necessarily would be of um, that underclass. However, that's not necessarily the way that we're perceived by society and the police who would then then target, you know, all, all individuals of, of a certain race. Definitely, definitely. That was something that kind of, 
what I learned about the kind of the black underclass that's something that kind of Stuart Hall talks a lot about in Police and the yeah. Crisis that book there he kind of goes in depth about kind of this kind of black underclass that kind of emerged from the recession and also who else kind of talked about that I think there's other people like John Solomus who again amazing, yeah. amazing scholar but yeah um, Gus John but Stuart Hall oh, kind yeah, of, the, of one of the first people that kind of talked about and kind of looked at kind of this love and proletariat and embedded it into a black British perspective Definitely. Definitely. Great points made there as well. Right, let's move on to our next point then. And let's think about protesting, uh, maybe in a little bit more of a modern context. Um, And also to pull up on a point that you mentioned um, with this idea that when we were protesting, say, in 2020, um, with the trigger being George Floyd's murder, um, we kind of and this is a point that David Olasoga made in an article in The Guardian, I think, a few weeks ago. He said that we were kind of spurred on in Britain um, as black people or as as white anti-racists um, or, you know, other races as well, of course. Um, and we understood that the same systems that led to George Floyd's death were the same systems that could lead to a black man, you know, being killed in a similar or the same way in this country, which we've seen in, in this history in black men and women. Um, and so kind of maybe what are your thoughts on that? The This idea of, yes, we're focusing on America in a modern context, but, you know, as you've mentioned, the systems are, are at play there. Well, they're British systems in the first instance, and, you know, they are still at play in this country as well. Yeah, and it's like... I think we undermine our issues of like police brutality in, in, in what's happened in Britain. You know, mm. we can go back to David Aluwali in 1969 oh, at least when the police, how the police did that. We can look at Cynthia Jarrett where the police kind of caused that heart attack where the police officer pushed, mm-hmm. pushed the, she's like 50 year old black woman to the floor. Yeah. Of course, her to have a heart attack and pass away. There's so much different case studies. And again, Honestly. when we look at, when we look at George Floyd, I feel as a diaspora, we all kind of, mourned for our kind of african-american brothers and sisters and mm-hmm. it's even just so humane how you can just see an officer put his knee to this black person's neck yeah. for eight minutes while he's just screaming for help you know mm-hmm. i think yeah. i don't know it's just really hard to put into words but it was it was Definitely. a it was a difficult time you know on just social media just seeing that all the time and just seeing all these issues being amplified but i think now it's now it's it's really good to see how a lot of people are learning about british history yeah, and, definitely. You know, it's all coming to light now, like a lot of I stuff agree. that's gone on in the past with Britain. Definitely. I like the way that, although it's, it sounds weird that, you know, a movement that started with police brutality in America has led to things like the black curriculum being so popular as, as like a social organisation um, in terms of getting black history on the curriculum, black British history. Um, and, you know, this podcast, like, I don't know if I did this podcast before, 2020 may if anybody would listen to it in the same way that they do now um let's be honest the the cry for this history wasn't there before and you know all these appointments being made by universities for for lecturers in black british history caribbean history and african history i feel like that is a direct kind of cause so as much as those protests in a way kind of felt very tokenistic at the time um and in the kind of aftermath and some of the corporate statements that were made just kind of were ridiculous because one day they'd make you know, they'd make a, a racially insensitive comment or post and then the next day they were, oh, we support Black Lives Matter and take 20% off. And oh yeah, God. it just, yeah, there was a lot of that. And I think kind of picking through all that crap, 
for want of a better word, to kind of find the gems and the organisations that are now thriving because of that interest in being an active anti-racist. That has been, I think, probably one of the best things to come out of, of that. Um, also, I find it weird. I don't know if it's just me. I feel like I see a lot more black people on telly, in adverts, in shows. Yeah. and I was just having a conversation yesterday as well. In one of our it's classes. strange, right? It's not just me. <laughs> Honestly, like, it's I don't know whether that's come from that or whatever, but I don't know. One one thing I can say, one, one, one of the good things I've, I think personally from the BLM stuff, it was like, I kind of, even though, I studied history and literature. I started to read a yeah. lot more. And mm. I, I think I just, I bought, I just, with my master's loan as well, I just built a library. So I, would, I bought like yeah. over like 200 books, just random from like bookstores, wow. thrift stores and Amazon. And yeah. a lot of books really kind of changed me and changed my perspective on like, Black British history. I remember Definitely. reading Peter Fryer, probably my favourite historian now. Oh, um, Staying in, stay in Power. And it was like oh. the first line where he goes, yep. Black people in Britain before the English came. And then you kind of trace it back to the Roman periods. And then also Third now century. when you look at that, exactly, you know, when you look at, I guess, when we learn Tudor or when we learn Stuart history or when we learn Georgian history, there's a lot mm. you can coincide, like what was black people in Britain in those times there now? You know, yep. black Tudors, which, which, you know, shout out, I can't remember, I can't pronounce her last name, Miranda. Oh, Miranda Kaufman. Kauf, yeah, her book is amazing. Yeah. You can, but she took like black, black, um, black Tudors up until 1596 when they were expelled. Yeah or kind of restricted by the Privy Council, um, by insane. Queen Elizabeth. And also, after the American independence, after the war, American War of Independence, there were around about a couple thousand African refugees because they were promised mm. freedom if they fought in the American independence, they lost the war yeah. when they were in Britain. And then this is where you kind of have the kind of repatriation system comes into place, where you have like a lot of Africans that were sent back to Sierra Leone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's a lot of history of black people in Britain, a lot of black people in Europe as well. Which is, which is kind of undermined and I guess history just becomes so Eurocentric and whitewash over the times. But mm-hmm. I'm happy to see that, you know, we're having a new generation of skilled and trained historians that are here to document our history. That's a beautiful yeah. thing to see. And Definitely. probably that's the only good thing that's happened out of BLM is that people are taking and um, a notice to this stuff, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I would definitely agree with that. Um, it is obviously one of the best things, and maybe because we're in this discipline, but I'm sure other people in other fields or disciplines might feel this, a similar way about what's happening in their industry. Um, I, and I hope that's the case. It's not just, you know, within history, although I think history is such a huge tool of kind of shaping society and the things that we uphold within British society as being important or being right um, and all these statues. And as much as people say, oh, it's just statues, it's not that deep. Well, it is an indication of what, you know, society upholds as good or truthful or, or honest or, or brave. Um, and so, yeah, I think re- re-evaluating that is is fantastic for me. And I'm, I'm happy that, like, you know, year seven or eight student that had to sit in like a lesson of slavery and everyone was kind of staring at me because I was one of the only black people and people were talking about how good the British Empire was because it managed to conquer all these countries and it's such a small island and I was just kind of vomiting in my mouth in that lesson at age like 12. I feel like you know that little girl is is happy that we were at this point and obviously sad that it took such like brutal violence towards black people for it to happen um but we're, I guess we're here now in a way and we have to seize this opportunity to, to keep educating people why, which is why I've got people like you on this podcast to, to keep sharing these stories. So continue, <laughs> keep going. Thank you, thank you. But even so, like the point you made about 
had to just laugh there when, when you're talking about like the slavery in year eight because I feel like oh, yeah. the same I feel like I was the same as well like when you learn about these things in year eight and even myself I just feel like I had this colonial mentality when I was younger it was like I was so proud of the British Empire that we were able mm-hmm. to amass 22 percent of the globe you know right. the sun where the sun never sets and you know how it's taught as well you just think that everyone wanted to be British that we went and you know there was no bloodshed, there was no murder, there was no rape, there was mm. no religion, there was no genocide yep. attached to it as well. And remember, there was a YouGov, there was a YouGov poll that that's that. Yeah, that, that's that 60% the percent of, of of British people are proud of the empire. You know, look how <laughs> look how Churchill's painted, look how Churchill's praised. Exactly. Churchill's government's praised as well. You know, we, we look at Churchill and it's always like he won us the war. You know, he, Gosh. soldiers that fought. You know what I mean? The folk that won the mm-hmm. war, and even so, like I remember in my history class in my master's class actually we have an argument about with someone about how world war Two is taught as just british as just britain fighting and he was like no yeah. it's not it's the empire it was like in schools it's taught yeah, as exactly. just britain but you know when you actually read historical books obviously by you know a lot of um historians by historians that were second world war a lot of people talk about the british empire the french mm-hmm. empire and all these stuff there yeah. we have to think not the average joe is not going to read no exactly deep, not deep books on, the, on world war Two. So understandably, it's it, it's going to be alien to them to think that it was just Britain that it was just you know this one island that fought against German German yeah, Italians the Japanese you know of course it was a collaborative effort that's why hence why it's called World War because it was yeah definitely it was fought by people across the world, <laughs> the world. in the empires of war rather <laughs> yeah it, it just blows your mind but I don't know I think that with that. I don't know if I feel like academics have more of a responsibility to disseminate their work into the public. And I don't know whose fault that is. If it Because the average Joe isn't reading them books and they need to, in my opinion. And this is why I love David Olasoga so much um, for his documentaries. Because the average person isn't going to pick up Black and British and read through 600 pages of, of Black British history. And that's fine. People don't have time. Um, but, you know, his documentaries, you know, got the views in Steve McQueen's small act series got the views in um I just feel like we need more of of the kind of public education because I think that's the kind of only way to change things within society like it's all well and good in in these ivory towers these academics are publishing these articles and these books and these journal papers but if you know only academics are reading them of like-minded kind of opinions then what's the point yeah, here's a, here's a question I want to propose to you as well. Like, okay. how do how do you feel about the small um, the small act series? Do you feel like it may be kind of watered down in a way? That, I, you know what? I only watched I only watched the the Lovers Rock one because I kind of yeah. I find it hard to watch Black Trauma. So okay. the Brixton one I kind of read about. I know about a lot about it. The Mangrove yeah. one, um, my mentor told me it wasn't for him. Yeah. Or how do you feel about those kind of documentaries? Did you feel it was an accurate description or did you feel like it was kind of watered down in a way? So I think taking them all individually, first of all, because the Mangrove 9 one for me was sensational. I think, and having done extensive research on it, there were just the way that the character, they'd kind of, I think it was, and I give credit to the actors, the way that they had researched the characters that they were playing, like Dark as Howe was, oh, phenomenal. And Althea Jones, um, LaCoint as well, the way that they were portrayed and even some of the small things that they did or said or their idiosyncrasies were, were caught really well from, you know, me having, I'm a big fan of Dark as Howe. I've literally, any interview he's done, I've probably watched it. And even down yeah. to kind of some of the speeches, it was just sensational. But obviously it's a drama. 
So I think me personally, I think I watch a lot of historical dramas, like all the slavery films, 12 Years a Slave. I hate them, but I will always watch them. Um, I don't know why. I just kind of, maybe I am addicted to trauma. It's as horrible as it sounds, as terrible as it is. But I think growing up as well, that was kind of the only injection of, of blackness you got in the cinema at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of like the comedies of the like 90s um, and early 2000s. So I have time for them and I will watch them. I'm very critical of them, but I really like the Mangrove Nine one. The Lovers Rock one, my aunties in the group chat slated it from the first second of it because they were like, <laughs> this is not what it was like. And obviously they were there. You know, I can't tell them anything. I wasn't there. Oh, I wasn't even a thought. Um, so yeah, they had a few more problems with that. And I don't think I liked that episode as well. Um, they argued that the focus on Janet Kay's silly games was a bit, not random, but it didn't really fit the actual time, um, yeah. that song. But then I was like, oh, maybe it was licensing laws. Maybe they couldn't get something else. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think that episode threw in too many different random things. Um, there was like a moment of potential sexual abuse. Um, there were moments of like religion not making sense too much in regards to the Lovers Rock scene. I don't know. That There was too much for me in that one. I wasn't a fan. Um, the Leroy Logan one, the police one, um, I did a podcast episode on that. I, I liked it to an extent. I didn't rate the accents. Um, I just don't. Oh, I just feel like the Jamaican accent is an acquired sound and not many people can do it. <laughs> and I just wish they would just let Jamaican people do their own accents because, no, it was a no from me. Um that episode, I don't think it showed the trueness of Leroy Logan's life um, and everything he achieved. It was too traumatic and it didn't need to be. Like that, I just felt like you just wanted to upset me. And yeah, I didn't like that one. Um, <laughs> and then there was Alex Weath, Alex Whittle. Um, yeah, but the Yeah, I didn't, I wasn't a fan of that one either. I, I kind of wanted more of a f- focus. But I think because it's a drama, it has to focus on, on people and characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're right in saying it, that can detract from the actual historical narrative. So apart from the Mangrove Nine one, to be honest, I I was excited to watch them. But by the time we got to the end, I was like, oh, yeah. yeah. But then I also saw the conversations that took place on Twitter after with people that aren't privy to this history. And that was what got me happy. Yeah, it's good about get, get people talking in a way. Yeah. And everyone is a good thing. But the Mangrove what, Nine one, you know, documented such a pivotal moment in Black British history. So mm-hmm. big ups to him, but again, my mom was very, and my uncle was very critical over the Lovers Rock one. Yeah. You know, it was like this is not actually, as you said, it's not accurate description as no. well. So yeah, they were a bit annoyed. So after that one, I kind of like lost interest in a way. In a bit, yeah, but, yeah, again, a lot of people did, you know. Mm, yeah, you're not the only person that said that. A lot of people said, "Oh, um, Sundays are not for small acts anymore." <laughs> so glad yeah. not the only one then. No, definitely not. But, you know, it was on the BBC. It it put black British history at the forefront of people's minds on a Sunday evening. Oh, yeah. sorry. <clears throat> um, which was fantastic. So, you know, I rate it and I'm I'm happy and I hope that it gets we get more opportunities to put these histories out there. Just I think I want more of our own ownership over the narratives though. Whether that means we have to take it to a place of YouTube to create these stories and documentaries ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, because in the mainstream they can get white, not necessarily whitewashed, but watered down, shall we say? Um, yeah, so that would be maybe an interesting thing for the future, as as we kind of move away from mainstream TV, anyway. Not right. Definitely. 
let us get back to the police. Although the Mangrove Nine episode was definitely an, an element of, you know, institutional um, racism and just general police prejudice um, and discrimination. Um, the amount of, of kind of points in that way, you just saw policing at its worst. Um, but obviously, I, I what I would say is it's normal. Um, was very interesting to me. Um, I think a point I had was that policing um, and, uh, and poor policing, the over-policing of, of black people um, as suspects and the under-protection of them as victims, which is, I think, Maureen, Maureen Kane um, has in her, yeah, Society and the Policeman's Role, which she published in 1973, a uh, very underrated text. Um, they're a common trigger for protests in this country, we'll be thinking about 1981 or even as far back as 1919 and even in 2020, as you mentioned, you know, the names on people's placards at these protests in 2020 were not just American names, you know, Mark Duggan, uh, Simeon Francis, Sarah Reed, Mikey Powell, Kingsley Burrell, Cynthia Jarrett, of course, David Oluwale from, you know, 1969, They their names were all there. And so why do you think policing is the trigger? Is it because someone has lost their life? Or do you think it's something else because when I think about sorry just to say the wind say the windrush um deportations and, and deportations now they don't pull crowds like that when it comes to protesting I think it's the issue and it's like who's protecting us from the mm. people that's meant to protect us in a right. certain way and it's like you have this system that's put in place of policing that's meant to protect the masses mm. where instead they become, they become a system of oppression that we found historically the black community when you look at the causes of the 1981 riots or the uprising in 1981 what do you have you have you have the special patrol group yeah you have swamp 81 of where course. they literally swamped into the black community and they were just stopping and searching every every black person they could find thinking that they was a mugger thinking they were a mm. thief thinking they yep. was a, a drug dealer or so on so forth so it's like yep. when you look when you look at what they've done historically and I guess what they continue to do, I remember Guardian article reported that um, well, black people are 40 times more likely to be stopped and searched in London than white people. And even Carissa oh, Dick yeah. alluded to the point that, you know, there's so much damage done that there's no way able there's been, there's, you know, it's beyond repair with the black yeah, community. Yeah, I think so. It's, it's like, of course we're going to just protest. Of course we're going yeah. to, you know, demand change because there's nothing that really happened you know you had mcpherson the inquiry in 1999 that you know finally mm. finally <laughs> said that, finally said yep. that you know, the police is an institutionally racist organization and that's Absolutely. something that was rejected in scarman's report which again was was rubbish and also in the 1981 <laughs> the inquiries in the 1985 um uprising so like with the handsworth with silverman's report as well yeah and you have a I'm not going to sit here and say that the police system is an institution racist organisation. Mm-hmm. However, what I can say is Pearson, McPherson said that. Well, mm-hmm. prove that. But what change has happened right. 20, 22 years later? Have mm-hmm. you seen what's changed? You exactly. can hire all these you can hire all these these black officers, these Asian officers, but still they still might have elements of racial prejudice as well. In exactly. Because it's you know, a system. It's a system, exactly. It's a system as well. And I feel they're racist to the core as well, in my opinion, the police yeah. are. And, Definitely. you know, when we go back into time and we're looking at history, and we're looking at kind of racial prejudice in the police force, whether in the 70s and the 80s, you know, racism in the, in the police force is a mimic of racism in society. So if society mm. is overtly racist, then, you know, police, they might, you know, cling on to those kind of 
racial tropes. That's kind of yeah. my opinion on, you know, policing the triggerings, I guess. Definitely. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, because as you said, it is the force that is meant to, and in America it's protect and serve, but here, you know, it's still meant to to protect. I think the history of policing in this country probably, you know, says a lot as to why black people aren't being protected by this force. But as you've said, you know, you have the McPherson report, which comes out after Stephen Lawrence's death. Um and his murder, which is not taken seriously by the police force and not investigated properly. Um, and, you know, McPherson says, institutionally racist, police force, okay. Um, and then, you know, following on from that, the recommendations are made, but are they implemented? And that's my problem with all these reports. If we think about policing, there are like tens of reports on this police incident or the London Met here or what they did at this point or in reaction to the riots or whatever. And I just feel like the implication, the, sorry, the um, recommendations, are they ever implemented? And then who follows up? Who checks in? Like, who are they responsible for, to? Because I feel like the government can't be held responsible because, you know, things that the Home Office are doing are also just as systemically racist as the police force. Um, so, I just feel like, as you said, who are the police answering to? And of course, they answer to independent watchdogs and committees. But are they really independent? Because they don't seem to be riding for black people at all or poor people in many ways and, you know, different groups. Most def- most definitely. When you're looking at like Scarman report and all the kind of stuff there, he was probably like an apologist for the government in a way. Yeah. Look, I read through like a lot of the stuff you say in the report, you know. He says that, you know, racial prejudice does exist amongst some officers, but, you know, mm. again, rejects that yeah. the institution is a, rather, it's an institution racist organisation. Definitely. And evidence says otherwise. But even so as well, when you're looking at the police, we've been looking at um, a lot of stuff they implemented in the past, even going back to before you had the mass migration of, of, of people from the African diaspora and the black diaspora, you know, the Vagrancy yeah. Act 1824 or SUS laws, which again, was used back in, in Victorian Britain to harass, you know, a lot of the poor people. Yeah. A lot of the people that were on the streets. So, again, they've been historically always a, always been an institution that's oppressed. Definitely. The oppressed people, the bottom of society. Definitely, yeah. yeah. It's interesting to see how they kind of use that legislation to, you know, harass a lot of the black people in the 70s under the use of SUS as well, which I found mm. incredibly interesting. Like the police were like. Yeah, sus laws. It's like sus has been replaced with like the stop and search laws of today. Everything yeah. is just repackaged and and repushed out to to oppress people all over again. Um, as we kind of think about it in the modern context, definitely. I also was thinking about the point you said about um Scarman kind of saying you know it's a few few officers with with racial prejudice and this idea that there's a few bad apples and oh if you just root out the bad apples, but I think the whole tree is rotten. Um, for you know to carry on the analogy Um, and I think as we've said it it's systemic it's not just if you got rid of every single police officer I still think you'd still have a potentially institutionally racist police force because that is a system Um, and that's a system of Britain it's not just the police as a bad kind of example you know there's racism in football there's racism in schooling systems healthcare medical racism it's like so so widespread and then to see something like that subtle report that came out um earlier this year to tell me that that britain is not institutionally racist anymore um right 
<laughs> even, even that report as well. I've never... From when you have the Prime Minister that, you know, makes such remarks like that. Honestly. Makes remarks he says, and then you go around and say that there's... The Britain's not, you know... <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. So, you know, we could spend all day talking about that report there because I wasn't yeah. really a fan. And again, he's kind of like... Um, Seals like the government's token black friend that they yeah, kind of use to always, you know, push their agenda. Mm-hmm. So that's another story for another day. Definitely. <laughs> it really is. And I think nearly every podcast I've done with a guest in the past few weeks, I'm, we've brought that up somehow because it's just so ridiculous. I think my final point on reports has got to be this idea that all the reports that seem to suggest there's racism or prejudice and that something needs to be done, they get silenced very quickly. Um, Maureen Kane, I mentioned, Society in the Policeman's Role, 1973, very much underused, um, was pretty much ignored when it was first published. Uh, Joseph Hunt, nigger hunting in England, sorry to say that word, but 1966, he literally details of the police going, quote unquote, nigger hunting. That is the, the terminology they used before they would go on patrol. They were looking specifically for black people. Another report that was widely um, dismissed and just kind of pushed to the side, whereas you have this report, like the Saul report, that everyone's like, oh yeah, no institutional racism, ha ha ha, fantastic. Why is that one kind of taken up so strongly and so believable when all these other ones, the Windrush report from 2020 um and all these other ones that you know we probably don't even know about because they've been pushed pushed aside so far you know why aren't they listened to yeah and i like the what i like the kind of the um the point you make about the joseph hunt with the with the digger hunting book mm-hmm. right again because that was something that was particularly evident in liverpool they used to have like yeah. these things called coon races where it's Absolutely. like they put money in a pot and whoever could grab the most i guess the most black people the rest of the most from the day would have that money as well it's disgusting yeah, so that's what the police are on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you have evidence of this. Yeah, that's exactly. why I don't... And it's like, oh, no, it's not a problem. What they're doing is absolutely fine. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think we've taken this to a, to a place of, of no return. Um, and I think we're going to wrap up with some closing remarks about protesting racism and all that kind of stuff and thinking about it within today's context or historically, um, if you'd like. Um, so I have a few questions for you. Um, you know, protesting today, is it all performative? Do you think it works? Does it have an impact? And you can think about, you know, 1980s or, or now, if you'd, if you'd rather. Um, I think today now, when this kind of whole age of social media, I don't think it has any meaning. Like it's okay. lost that kind of way now. I think people just want to go to show Instagram mm. or Twitter that they, that, you know, they went to the protest and that they, mm. and I think, um, when I went to the protest, I kind of realise, yeah, this is the last time I kind of do these protests, you know. I want to make real change, you know. Yeah. I don't want to do what the problem, I want to do with the solution. That's the kind yeah. of how I see life in a way. And even so, when we're looking at, as historians, when we're looking at um, protests historically, when you look at the civil rights and the African-American history, mm. you know, they protest, they got the civil rights um, passed, well, the Civil Rights Act in 1964, Voting Rights Act in 1965, but what change really happened there? They got the voting, yeah. desegregation, but in a way you could argue that, you know, the Black American, Black American experience kind of regressed past Absolutely. that era as well. And I feel the real thing that King couldn't get, the real thing that, you know, what God was pushing for, that Malcolm X was pushing for, and the whole nation of Islam, and, you know, a lot of these groups of economic power, mm-hmm. you know. That's why when you're looking at, well, when King, after King spoke up about um, Vietnam War and the poor man, and then he tried to do the poor man's campaign and so on and so forth, you see how, he tried to get the, the black and whites together to, to fight for economic power. Yeah. You know, the poor white people and the poor black people, you know, like the black community in general. So I feel like maybe, well, not even maybe, I feel like economic power is 
it's probably economics is just something that mm. I'm, black economics is something that I'm really interested in the future yeah of course and just kind of just uplifting people uplifting my people in particular Definitely. and again black economics doesn't mean that you don't support any other race come on mm-hmm. that's not what we mean yep. but you know, know this <laughs> in the black community what do we own you know we own yeah. um food food stores or hair shops you know mm-hmm. you can go to, to asian high streets and they've got like blanks they've got all these different things here you know but Definitely. yeah back to the point now when they're protesting i feel that's something that i'm gonna leave in the past i feel like i want to be in, in the places where i can make real change whether that's boardroom yeah. meetings or you know speaking to people high up ministers um i mean like yeah mps and so on and so forth so Definitely. that's my opinion on that there that makes sense absolutely i think it is important um to kind of i think maybe protests can be the start but never the end you know you can't go to that protest go home to put your picture on instagram and feel really proud of yourself you've you've made a start um one thing i will say about protests though the energy um you get from them i think if i went to like a protest every week before i started like work i would be so spurned on by monday because they are very motivational they're tiring and you're you know you're drained um but I think they can be so um, kind of not hype building, but they really do hype you up to, to to potentially take on whatever you need to take on. And as you said, get into those boardrooms, get into those um, conversations at them, them tables where the decisions are being made and have an impact there. Definitely. Um, I like the point you made about protests kind of leading to legislation change, potentially in the case of America. Um, and maybe that is kind of protesting's only, well, not only, um, but one of the main, kind of benefits of them if we if we have a legislation that needs to be changed um using mm. a protest to, to do that and kind of create awareness about it um is probably one of the best ways um to do that maybe um okay you touched on social media but i want to ask do you think social media and the kind of activism we see on there helps or hinders um kind of movements for for racial equality or anti-racist protests and things like that i think well firstly you know what before I got that one there. I wanted mm. to say, again, I'm not against protest in a way. And BLM of protest. course, yeah. Say, you know, the reason why I kind of said that is because I think the moment Boris kind of opened up the country, everyone's mm. going back to Shubses. Yep. No one cared. That's the only reason why Definitely. I was like, cool. And again, nothing's changed since a year on. But other than that, you know, we got to protest and all that stuff there. But the social media help with hinder. I think with social media, sometimes with protests and that, yeah, you look, when you look at it, I think it's, it's a success in a way where it just it kind of is able to galvanise people and, and, and tell. And, you know, when we look at that BLM, well, when, well, the murder of George Floyd and kind yeah. of how it was kind of happened in Britain as well, it was like over like three, four days. Mm. I remember just seeing so much things being spread. Boom, 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 boom. Activism, everyone's getting together. You know, you had the Blackout Tuesday, then the protests were announced for the Friday. It was, I think it's a, it's a help, yeah. I, I believe, in the way social media Again, though, I think the issues with social media is sometimes they can just spread false information. Definitely. You know? They can post a lot of, like, say, no history. Mm. You follow, like, a lot of these different pages that just post random stuff. Um, don't want to get into pages or people, but, <laughs> you know. In that respect, it, it does have a hindrance. But again, yeah. you know, if if you follow the right people, or not follow the right people, but, you know, if you see, if your timeline is good or, you know, you see some good stuff being posted alongside yeah yeah it's i think it's a help in a way definitely i think it can help reach people that wouldn't necessarily be reached by you know seeing a protest you know social media is as you said something that we if you have that correct timeline and you're on it 
a lot you are going to take in and absorb a lot of that information even like um kind of subconsciously and so yeah I, I agree with you in saying that social media can really help um but this misinformation and there's a lot of it um and I feel like I've seen Instagram and Twitter as well like if you try and retweet an article without having clicked the link they'll say do you want to read this article first um which you know is helpful in a way it's another step to kind of slow your brain down with just resharing things that look correct because they're from maybe someone who has a lot of followers or someone who has spoken about something before um so yeah I can I can see social media's helpfulness and its its hindrances definitely as you said I completely agree um and the final question I think I have for you unless you have anything else you'd like to say or share um is how should we look back then historically at riots protests and uprisings let's take 1981 for a you know case as a a public shall we say outside of academia how is it best to kind of remember these events um is it something that needs to kind of be not necessarily memorialised, but written about, spoken about, um, you know, documentaries. Is that the way that we kind of look back at these riots and protests? Or is it things, thinking about the legacy of them and maybe what they changed or didn't? That's a good question. I think Thank you. One, <laughs> I think one good way to look at it is that, you know, black people, we were never submissive to racism. Yeah. That's one thing we should never, we should never look at it like, you know, we fought back. Yeah. We tried whether it was, you know, try goal legislations, we mm. tried, whether it was, you know, with these groups, you know, you had like the scrap course, um, scrap sauce committee, I think it was yeah. George, George Bolt, was it Paul Bolting? He was a part of it. He was a Labour MP for Bristol and a lawyer as well. So we had all these different community activists, you know, and sometimes if violence really emerges, it emerges. So again, I think it's one way to look at it that we've never been a docile people. We've never been submissive. Absolutely. We've never stood there and just watched injustices happen. We've, we've fought back, you know, whether that being through yeah, as I'm saying, campaigns and organising or whether that being unfortunately, well, not even unfortunately, through violent means. Because sometimes, you know, as Malcolm X says, by any means necessary. Yeah. And we have to look at, when we look back at these uprisings, I think we can look back and just say it was a pivotal moment in Black British history, you know, and this is a moment where we really, I guess we kind of just like ran police out or showed Definitely. them what was happening. That's actually an interesting one as well when you're looking at, I think, Notting Hill Carnival 1976 where... Mm-hmm. That was probably one of the first case studies of Black British community fighting back violently when yeah. they came before police would come to Carney and catch wines, you know, yeah. and have a good time. <laughs> they were really out there, stern yeah, face, bad vibes, mm-hmm. you know, negative energy. Up, you, put, you know, negative yeah, energy, and then that was one of the case studies that I really love. Where it's like, yo, they fought back violently because they, you know, yeah. if you're going to see, if you're seeing five officers punching up one little black you, are you mm-hmm. really going to stand there? Exactly. And, and just watch. watch that. You know what I mean? So. I think we can look back with pride with, you know, I guess the community uprisings and just seeing how, I guess, the black community really fought back. And yeah, hopefully it should be be documented more. Yeah, um, With maybe some documentaries, because they had a real good one on BBC One. It was about um, resistance. I think it was like yeah. racism. I think I can't remember how long ago it was. It's like an hour and a half, but yeah, it's a good documentary. Definitely. But yeah, I think looking back at it with pride and just documenting our history in the right way. Def- I agree. I Definitely. Definitely agree with all those points. And I think just to add, just came to my mind, um, there's a documentary called Hands of Songs by Jonah Comfra. Um, and that was um 
uh, following, I think it was 1984 riots in Handsworth, um, but had elements of 1981 as well. And it has footage, it has interviews, um, and it's a really good kind of visual way of understanding the riots. And that the fact that it's about Handsworth, which is obviously Birmingham and not London, um, is also really, really interesting that that's the angle they took and really helpful as well to understanding these histories outside of London. Definitely. Yeah, sweet. I'll check that one out there. So. Yeah, it's a good one, definitely. Um, I think that is everything that we aimed to speak about today in regards to protesting racism. I think potentially there might be, you might, if you see another episode about racism and protesting, then you know it's a series. And if you don't, then decided to end it here. Haven't decided yet. I'm a little bit indecisive this week, um, but I think it would be interesting to look in depth maybe at one of the cities. Um, in particular and, and kind of how that started just to kind of give you as listeners that maybe don't know the history so well context of of these uprisings and you know all the ins and outs of why they were shall we say important and people kind of cared so much at that point to take it to the streets um so Montel thank you so much for being on the podcast this week honestly it's been a true true pleasure to have you on um and to kind of hear your perspective and all the research you've done i'm sure your dissertation is going to be absolutely fantastic because you. you know the, the wealth of sources um and reading that has gone into it all dissertations are just they're mad they're a lot but yeah it'll be so worth it um oh, thinking man. about all the things you've thank talked you so much for having me you know big no worries at all so yeah man this is being adult man thank you again Anytime, right? Let us know where do we find you? What are your socials? Um, the uh, your magazine, your music magazine. Uh, tell us about all of that um, before you go. So any any fans you've developed during this episode can can check you out later. Yeah, so nostalgia um, ninety nine. My music, my music magazine is a bit stagnated at the moment, you know, because of uni. But we're back on it. We are back with the blogs and all and so on and so forth. Um, magazine sold out, I'm afraid, unfortunately. But no however, next one having new next one should be coming. Yeah end of the year early next year so watch out for that fantastic um so yeah follow it on instagram it's nostalgia 99 nostalgia 9 letter t 9 and in my personal instagram you can find me at uh montel triple underscore on instagram yeah that's all <laughs> you know what? i'm very i'm very i'm no, very honestly. hard at plugging myself you know, I try to let the work be the answer. Yeah, <laughs> you've got to do it. You have to <laughs> plug yourself That's always. Say, really. um, and, you know, as you said, your work will speak for you. Um, but please do follow Montel if you are interested in things he is and you want to hear what he has to say about, you know, music, the police, protesting racism and all that good stuff historically and otherwise. And I'd just like to say thank you for listening to this episode of the History Hotline. A little bit longer than normal. However, I hope you enjoyed it because we had a lot of juicy things to talk about. Please stay tuned for the next two or three maybe episodes that will look more specifically and in depth at the 1981 riots, probably starting with Brixton as that's where it all kicked off, moving into some regional histories, looking at places in um, Birmingham or further north like Liverpool and Leeds. So thank you so much for listening. Montel, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Goodbye.